Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So without further ado, Benjamin Ross uh, was president of Maryland's Action Committee for Transit. He is currently a consultant on environmental problems and served on committees of the National Academy of Sciences and EPA Science Advisory Board. He also writes on political and social topics in Dissent Magazine and is the author of The Polluters, The Making of Our Chemically Altered Environment. He, here he is to discuss his newest book, Dead End, Suburban Sprawl and the Rebirth of American Urbanism. Hi, it's really a pleasure to be here. <clears throat> and I, what I want to do mostly is talk about how I came to write the book and how it led into the uh, questions that I'm trying to answer in the book. Uh, <clears throat> where I live in Maryland in 1986, they abandoned a freight line and our governor uh, proposed to build a light rail line on a four-mile stretch between the two biggest downtowns in the Maryland suburbs of Washington. Uh, <clears throat> they were building something in Baltimore at the same time and moved faster. And by the time our county had gone through all its planning approval processes, the Baltimore project had overrun its budget and there was no more money. The, uh, they then started studies for a federal funding, uh, but the project was very controversial because the tracks run through the middle of the golf course of one of the fanciest country clubs in the Washington area. Uh, and the, the country club over the years spent millions of dollars to try to block the project. Uh, in no 1994, they elected a new county council, which was a new county executive who was against the project, and the county council was only in favor of it five to four, with one of the five thinking it's not needed for the next 10 years later. So everyone gave it up for dead except for this small citizen group. Uh, the, the founder of the group, I had joined it two or three years before then, the founder of the group uh, said we needed a broader coalition. Uh, and asked me to be the president uh, while he organized the coalition and said, you won't have to do much work, right? Um, so <clears throat> at this point, uh, the coalition was pretty slim. Uh, business was for it, but gave it only lip service because as I said, everyone had given the project up for dead. Labor was more or less the same. Uh, we did have some citizen groups supporting us, 
but in 1998, we printed scorecards stating where all the candidates stood on transit issues, especially this, and passed out 20,000 of them at all the rail stations on the Washington Metro that were in our county. Uh, look like this. This is the most recent elections scorecard, but it was similar. Uh, and the new county council was six to three in favor of the project, one of the six uh, firmly convinced that our scorecard was his margin of victory. So the day after they took office, they sent a letter to the state asking them to restart the studies. Uh, at this point, the coalition picked up steam. Business groups were for it. Uh, we went to work on building public support, which was already 70 or 80 percent in favor, but we had to bring that out. Uh, and one of the things we did was this country club, of course, kept itself behind the scenes. And we tried to bring out their role. Uh, we talked about it in newspapers. We sometimes held signs in front of the entrance. Uh, at one point, I ran into the country club's lobbyist at a political fundraiser. And he says to me, you know, my mother really doesn't like what you're saying about me. And I said, your mother should love what we say about you. All we talk about is how highly paid you are. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so uh, <clears throat> at this point, we had a coalition that consisted uh, of business, labor, environmentalists, uh, more civic associations in favor of it than against, although the wealthiest neighborhoods were more against. but. Uh, uh, and minority groups. Now, all my previous experience of politics was that if all these people are for something, it happens. You don't even need a coalition. Uh, but with uh, transit, it's not like that. And we wound up, uh, the, uh, our governor announced he was going to build it in 2001, but then we had a opponent to the project elected as governor in 2002. Uh, the business people prevailed on him not to totally kill the project, but they just spun wheels for four years. Uh, then it was, became the, about the biggest issue in the gubernatorial elections of Maryland in 2006 and 2010, uh, with constant fighting all along the way. Um, in uh, our current status is that uh, the state legislature raised the gasoline tax 20 cents a gallon last year statewide with the main purpose being to pay for this light rail line and another one in Baltimore. The uh, president's budget issued in February recommends our project for $900 million in federal funding. Uh, and uh, so there's still work to do, but currently, you know, if it all falls into place, which it is very close to doing, construction will start late next year. Uh, our group also got involved in supporting development around the transit stations. And there you see the same phenomenon, things that should, everyone's for it in principle, but actually doing it is very hard. And even when you succeed in getting something built, it falls short of what you wanted. You know, you wanted like a walkable neighborhood, old style, like downtown, and you wind up with some very nice little 
build some very nice buildings with nice stores, uh, apartments above, and then in front of it you've got an eight-lane high-speed highway. Uh, and so, really, the question is, why is this so hard? There's tremendous economic demand for city living, tremendous demand for transit. You have polls in the Washington area. Uh, our polls show not only, they, they, they've asked, there have been several public opinion polls that asked what should be the main priority in transportation funding, uh, more roads or more transit. And not only does it turn out two to one for transit, but actually among people who drive to work, the majority is for spending on transit. And yet, it's still so hard to get it done. And that's really why I wrote the book, to try to figure that out. And you hear a lot of explanations of why this stuff is so hard. Uh, people say, um, well, people are just naturally resistant to change. And uh, let's just say that if people were equally resistant to change in computers as they are, and phones as they are in uh, uh, land use and transit, Apple computer would be a lot less successful. Um, you hear people say, well, it's, uh, you know, the developers and the highway lobby, but, you know, look at it realistically and there is plenty of grassroots resistance. Uh, people say, well, people are just defending their property values. And when people say that, I point them to the most contested real uh, development area in our region. And if you go there now, as a result of what was allowed to be built, you'll see a row of, li a row of stores lined up there. Uh, Tiffany, Jimmy Choo, Gucci, and Louis Vuitton. And nobody thought that was gonna lower their property values. Um, saw that picture. Yeah, you saw the yeah. <laughs> um, so I came to the conclusion that what you really have here is a clash of two value systems. You have a suburban value system that has been built up in this country over a long period of years that holds the single family house and travel by automobile as being superior to other ways of living. And people uh, who are committed to that over the years not only want to their own neighborhood not to change, but they want to preserve the higher ranking of those forms of life. And that's why I think you often see such vehement opposition, even from people who aren't near what you're trying to build. Um, and usually it's just a subtext, but sometimes it comes out uh, explicitly. Uh, our county rewrote its zoning ordinance last year, and one of the big issues was whether to allow hen houses in backyards. Yeah. And uh, the, you know, the, it's very now very fashionable to have locavores. They want you know home raised food, and they were for it. But then the people against it uh, were also very vociferous, uh, and someone came to the public hearing and testified that allowing backyard chickens was, uh, quote, a cultural slap in the face at the African-American community. 
because she said, you know, we grew up poor in the south and had to have chickens in the backyard and we moved to the suburbs to get away from that. Um, Another place you can see this is in the reaction to uh, bicyclists. If, if you look at statistics, a very large percentage of bicycle commuters are people with low income who either can't afford a car or are uh, undocumented and unable to get a license. Uh, but people who complain about bicyclists obstructing them in the streets never complain about them. It's always the people in spandex. Uh, because, you know, the guy who's riding that's old bike to work because he can't get a car it isn't a threat. Um, so that really, to me, is the common thread in why this stuff is so hard. And we have a, in the, since the uh, 70s, there's another layer over this, which is people see their neighborhoods as sort of having a brand image. Now, the whole economy got into branding. You know, people buy clothes for the logo, not for the clothing. And I think that works with uh, neighborhoods, too. Uh, part of the branding of the neighborhood, you know, and they have different, it's the most strongly branded neighborhoods that are the most opposed to any change. Uh, you know, whatever the brand is. I mean, compare, uh, well, here the, you take uh, Santa Monica or Venice and Brentwood. The brands are very different, but they're both similar in their attitudes towards this stuff. Or Cheviot Hills, I guess, is another one. Um, you know, not at all the same image as Santa Monica, but you see a lot of the same stuff going on. So how do you deal with this? Uh, and what we found was reaching out within the neighborhoods. One thing that you see is the person, the people who lead neighborhood associations very often are the ones most opposed to change. And there's nothing uh, strange about that because usually the purpose of a civic association is to stop bad things from happening in the neighborhood. So it's natural that the people who are most opposed to change uh, are the most active. But when you have a change that's for the good, you need to uh, reach around, get into individual neighborhoods and reach around the uh, leadership, which is sometimes self-appointed, and uh, talk to people about what they can see about how this enhances their neighborhood. Uh, and I, since I wrote my book a couple months ago, there's this new history of the LA Metro, uh, which talks about the Expo line. And, and what was done there was, very, I think, very similar uh, to what we did. It, it, one end of our line was in Bethesda, which has become the biggest center of nice restaurants in the Washington area. So in the other parts of the line, we talked a lot in our letters about you'll be able to take the train to the restaurants in Bethesda. That's not going to be the main source of ridership for this line, but it's something that everyone could see that it would, that connection would, in, would be useful and it would enhance their neighborhood. Uh, now in Bethesda, the thing that really resonated with people was uh, Georgetown, 
we said Georgetown turned down having a metro station and look what happened to them. Um, because Georgetown in fact has much fewer nice restaurants than it does and it has developed a uh, reputation for attracting college students drinking. Uh, it's still a very fancy place, so there are very few places where you would uh, uh, appeal to people by saying you don't want your neighborhood to be like Georgetown. But in Bethesda, that actually worked. And, and it really grabbed people. <coughs> uh, another crucial thing is engaging the broader community. It's really very undemocratic to have a very small group of people that happen to live near where you're building a major rail line have a veto over it. But you have to uh, mobilize the broader community, raise the level of discussion, and make the process more democratic. And to do that, you have to propose a real vision uh, that really engages people and they can see what a difference it, it will make. Um, and for that, in my experience, and I've become even more convinced in doing a lot of research for this book, rail transit is the key item in changing the way we live. Because when I talk about these two value systems, most people have sort of a combination of both. And people who basically drive and live in a suburb still can see how a rail line will change the area and change it for the better. <clears throat> so with all of that, uh, I think it's a, well, let me finish by uh, just reading one paragraph. Trains provoke interest and engagement because they're much more than transportation. The urban rebirth of the last 30 years has been a rail renaissance. New York, Boston, Chicago, and Philadelphia have revived around their subways. Change comes fastest not to the prettiest or safest neighborhoods, but to those with the best rail connections. Washington and Portland have been remade by their new train lines. In Los Angeles, Denver, and San Francisco, Skimpy rail networks that reach suburbs just here and there have sufficed to revive once fading downtowns. As they remake cities, rail lines bring rethinking. By elevating public space, they reject the suburban ideal of isolation. A visible challenge to the driver's ingrained belief that a car is the only normal way to move around, they affirm in steel and concrete that city dwellers no longer rank below suburbanites. Grassroots advocacy for urbanism begins almost always with a railroad. So with that, I'll open it up to questions. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if it's obviously I haven't read the book. It looks marvelous. Federal housing laws, 
because I remember nothing about racism. I was too young. But I do remember by the early 70s when he started building in, uh, outside the perimeter of freeway that uh, obviously circles Atlanta to the west. So that's always intrigued me. And then recently I was back in Atlanta. I did a show there before I was in this horrible accident. And so I'm going to come back to that to the point of LA. But I was thrilled to see that when I was a kid and we would go to the ball game at the stadium, it was pretty much like slummy kind of, you know, buildings, you know, around there. Not, you know, too horrible, but I think most people categorize it as slum. And they've been all been torn down. And so there's been a lot of great urban renewal, you know, replacing that with other obviously, you know, federally funded housing. So I'm the question is with regard to whether it's that or the new three and four story buildings we're seeing popped up all over in LA since I've been down for the last two years. It's been like bang bang, I don't have a problem with it. But the question is, and again I don't know enough about your book, do you cover what about green? Green, green, green. Are these newer buildings that are being put up, do you know if they're energy efficient and if they're green or not? These four-story urban things that are going up everywhere? Well, uh, an apartment building is almost always much more, even a small one is more er ener energy efficient than a uh, single-family house, just by the fact that you have common walls. And then the fact that you, with the more density, people walk more, take transit more, and drive less. Uh, that's really not what I, I get into in the book. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I talk, I'm trying to figure out what are the politics of this and what are the motivations that people have on both sides uh, and, and what are the trends. Yeah, 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 no, I mean, it, it's, uh, I, I, I mean, the same thing I tried to, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, no, that's a real. I mean, the 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 real extreme is in uh, Santa Monica, where they are boasting about their uh, ecologically conscious parking garage. Uh, and the solar panels for the charging stations for the. Yeah. 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 It. It's. Uh, well, you read this. The downtown they've been talking a lot about LED and the yeah. downtown really going for that. Right. The, the, the builders are going for that. And in fact, one of the problems is that they haven't, that those scoring systems don't take account. You know, it's only for the building itself and doesn't take enough account of where the building is, which drives uh, very much how much energy the people use. Yeah. Yeah, I ha I am. Uh, it's yes, a and I am. Uh, let's say a, uh, a a somewhat skeptical, but uh, well, I range because bus rapid transit is used for so many d different things. It it uh, loses all meaning. It, um, very, uh, you know. Uh, when bus rat, you know, they, on the one hand, 
Sometimes bus rapid transit is what you call a bus line that you're using as an excuse not to build rail. Um, other times bus rapid transit is just used for any improvement in bus service. I mean, and uh, you know, improvements in bus service are great. I, I mean, they're not a substitute for rail, but they're actually essential to go along with rail. And you, uh, and if that's how they think they can sell it, more power to them. But I, I, I get unhappy with the intellectual confusion, and sometimes it causes problems. Uh, I think if you're planning a bus route, you should plan the best possible bus route. And this slogan of bus rapid transit sometimes causes people to plan the bus route that most represents a most resembles a light rail line, and it's sometimes not the best possible bus route. Sometimes it's better, you know. Uh, express buses have their purpose, and the best express bus is one that picks people up in, you know, San Bernardino County and then gets on the freeway and doesn't stop till it gets to LA, you know? That's much better for the person out there. Uh, and uh, in other cases, it makes more, you know, I think there's a lot of value for bus lanes that local buses use that's, you know, there's a lot of routes where a bus rapid transit with stops a mile, half a mile or a mile apart doesn't make as much sense as simply putting a bus lane on the road and you know letting the uh, local buses use it. It all depends on the circumstance. Okay, I'll be happy to sign books and. Thanks for coming, everyone. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.